We normally think of ministers as preaching from a pulpit or officiating at the table, but Deanna Hollis is a minister whose ordination is specifically to the work of reducing gun violence. She's the first in America to do that job in that way. We'll be hearing from her on Good God. Stay tuned. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm pleased to welcome to the program today, Deanna Hollis. Deanna, we're glad to have you with us glad today. Glad to be here. Thank you, George. Deanna is, well, she has a distinction as being recently ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA, mm -hmm. but the first known minister to be ordained specifically to the work of addressing gun violence. Correct. So this is an extraordinary thing. I think many people wouldn't uh, know. Most people are ordained to do work of word and sacrament, as your language of your tradition would say, in a congregational setting. Or they might be ordained to teach, or they might be ordained to be hospital chaplains. So we're now getting closer to the kind of ordination that you have. You are ordained as a minister, but to this specific work, uh, in the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship, Fellowship mm -hmm. right? Correct. Uh, very good. And uh, say more about that Peace Fellowship, and I know that you're also involved as faith lead in the Dallas chapter of Moms Demand Action, which is again a, a, a gun violence uh, organization, uh, and you are the chair of the task force of Faith Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square that addresses gun sense. Uh, a group I'm involved with as well. But uh, specifically, what's the work that you're doing that you've been ordained to, Deanna? Yeah, so with the Peace Fellowship, I'm the Gun Violence Prevention Ministry Coordinator. So what that looks like is the Peace Fellowship had, well, at the time when I kind of came on board, we had about 600 names in our database of folks that had said they wanted to be counted in to prevent gun violence. We are now over a thousand names of wow. folks. So my role is kind of to build community with uh. those um, contacts. The Peace Fellowship had been, you know, kind of producing, sending out emails, putting together, we have a congregational toolkit for ideas, but there wasn't a real way to get information back, to be able to okay. say, what have you done? What's working for you? Mm -hmm. What are the obstacles that you're facing? And what do you need? How yeah. can we help you? So that was what my role is to be, is to be that connector for congregations, to be a resource for them for how they can talk about Great. gun violence in their context, yeah. So most people, I think, probably have a sense of call to ministry that is more general. Uh, yours is quite specific. Let's talk about how it came to pass. Yeah. How did you sense a call to do this work as a, a minister? Yeah, well, you know, it actually happened as part of Faith Forward Dallas, being at the um, NRA, the vigil that we had when the NRA was in town. Yes. And I had been um, struggling, actually, with my call. I'd, I'd been through seminary, I was in the ordination process, but I wasn't quite sure that being in a parish, it, it just didn't feel quite right. And so I'd been through a process of discerning. I'd opened up the Spirituality Center in Richardson and whether or not, you know, that was where I was being called. And then we had the, the prayer vigil. 
And I'd actually showed up at that with the intention that, okay, this is going to be my chance to say, if you're stepping out of the ordination process, see what it's like to just be Deanna Hollis. And um, several of the folks there can tell you that it was a very difficult and challenging weekend for me. It was not easy mm -hmm. to not be able to represent the church, uh -huh. you know, and particularly to not be able to represent the Presbyterian church. Yes. Because we have been speaking out against gun violence for 50 years. Wow. We have a policy that's one of the most developed of any other denomination. At least that's how we like to brag about it, you know. Mm -hmm. So this is something that's really important to my identity is being a Presbyterian and speaking out about gun violence. So that weekend, um, kind of the turning point for me was when Brian Mann with NPR showed up. It was early Saturday morning and he interviewed me and Nancy Kasten and Rachel Bachman and, and said that the he put the microphone and he said state your name and it was Deanna Hollis Rabbi Nancy Kasten and Reverend Rachel Bachman and he came back to me and he said are you a member of the clergy and I had to say no uh-huh and I instantly felt like my voice just shrunk interesting you know, and I kind of wanted to walk away, but Nancy was like, no, Deanna, you need to be here because she recognized, you know, that I was very involved in gun violence prevention and that I had a, um, a knowledge that they didn't necessarily have because they weren't as in depthly involved as I was. And so, I, you know, so that was the realization, a couple of things. Okay, so let's just stop. Okay. Let's, let's just stop and reflect there. So. <laughs> Rabbi Nancy Kasten, who happens to be the chief relationship officer for Faith Commons, the parent group to Good God, um, she was the first to, in a sense, lay hands on you and say, uh, you have a call here and you're one of us. Yes. Isn't that part of the wonder of how God is at work right now in the world? is in these relationships, even uh, across denominational lines as Christians and across religious lines, uh, multi-faith groups and individuals, you, you sense that you belong because a rabbi says, no, you, you are one of us. Yeah. What a remarkable thing yeah. that God is speaking to you in that way and we're all grateful. And those of us who work with you at Faith Forward Dallas uh, have no question in our minds about uh, that as well. So thank you for your leadership. Yeah, thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. But uh, originally you decided to go to seminary anyway uh, to explore this. And what was the faith journey that led you even to that point before the specific work of addressing gun violence? Yes, yeah, so I first felt called to the Ministry of Spiritual Direction. That okay. was why I entered seminary. All right. It was kind of an accident. I. Um, I was actually an accountant. That was my first trade. Okay. And so I was, after staying home with kids, I felt called to return to the church as the, I was an interim accountant for Westminster Presbyterian right. here. And it was in that role that I felt the call to, to spiritual direction. Folks would come into my office and we would start out talking about accounting, but it always would kind of lead to their faith journey. And at one point in time, my coworkers even took the chair out of my office because 
I was like, I can't get any work done. Oh, right, right. Because people keep coming and talking and wanting to talk about things. And so I was like, I can't keep doing so this. So you were actually helping congregants make the connection between money and their spiritual life. Would you come help our people do that as well, please? <laughs> please don't let that slide. That sounds like a really important thing for our congregations, too. But eventually, then, that leads you to seminary and then to an even more uh, focused work on gun violence. I think it's also interesting, though, probably, that so first you were making the connection between spirituality and money, and now you're making the connection between spirituality and uh, a public witness about gun violence. So action and contemplation, both, right? Mm -hmm. These things go hand in hand. They're not two different things. They're two aspects of the same thing. How do you think about the rootedness of faith convictions when you think about gun violence and the challenge of it? Yeah, I think that prayer, worship, and theology are what we, is our grounding, yeah. right? Like that's what we stand on. And when, we, when we're there, then it's, that's what we speak from, right? right? And that's how we're able to do this. And we also, um, I think that part of what makes it challenging and difficult to talk about this is because of what happens in our bodies when we start to carry on difficult conversations. Mm. And that's where spiritual practices can help. Right. Because we get anxious, we get angry, we feel defensive, and spiritual practices teach us to put our trust in God, to find a place of quiet center, to, to be grounded in uh, being, not in doing. All of those things are the things you talk about in spiritual practices, right? Yeah, yeah. And that, and I also think as we, as we start to unravel what is the root of our gun violence, okay. we're going to have to address things like confession and forgiveness. Well, right. And there's going to be practices mm. that can help us with that. Because again, that's tough stuff. Violence is rooted in rivalry, in competition, in fear, mm -hmm. in a sense of scarcity. Uh, in pain and suffering, how we learn to deal with those things, not just whether we can get sensible gun laws passed, but how to change human hearts and relationships. This is where that spiritual root is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And that's where I think this, you know, people like to put this as a either or, right? It's a matter of laws and it's a matter, or it's a matter of the heart, but right. it is a both and. Right. We need both. And right. that's where um, we need laws, right. but we also need to be looking at why are we violent and what is this about? Which, which probably leads us to say that when uh, people who are defending the right to bear arms uh, and the unlimited access to guns make the claim that guns don't kill, people kill, they, you know, that sort of thing, well, they're not entirely wrong about that, right? So I think we, you're right, we do sort of position people Either you believe this or you believe this. Can't you believe both things? Yeah. Right? And so uh, changing patterns of how we resolve conflict and learn to deal with one another is part of the transformation of society, not just getting the guns out of people's hands, even if that's important as well. Yes. So 
How do you address that as a part of your work when so much of the attention now is on lobbying efforts to pass certain laws? Yeah, and it is, uh, I have to say that that part's a little frustrating, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so when we start to get frustrated about that, I think that's a, a lane for the church yes. is to be able to say, okay, so, so how can we focus on this cultural change and what are the things that we can do? Yes. And the important thing is even just having the conversations. Yes. So that's what I've been inviting congregations that haven't been active before to help them see particularly here in the congregations that are in the Presbyterian Church. We're, we're known as purple congregations. Right. You know, we have members that are on both sides of this issue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we can be a model yeah. for how to carry on these difficult conversations mm -hmm. because we're people that still gather together mm -hmm. willingly, you yes. know, where that doesn't happen when it's a political issue. Right. You know, but if we can get it into being a matter, start talking about experience, and getting into levels of the heart, then I think we'll be able to to show the rest of the nation how we can carry on these conversations. If we can go to the communion table together yes, and say there is something deeper than our differences uh, politically and over the right to bear arms, uh, these sorts of things, whether we support this law or that, but we can see one another as sisters and brothers, it makes a difference in the way we have conversation about these differences, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And that's why it's Minister of Word and Sacrament. Okay, exactly. <laughs> Minister of Word and Sacrament, even if it's not in the congregational setting. That's correct. Because it's, it's that spiritual root that's so important. Mm -hmm. Very good. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we're, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want us to, though, explore uh, how we get past the all-or-nothing mentality about how to address Second Amendment issues and, and, and uh, legitimate questions of uh, rights and uh, responsibilities about uh, the use of guns. So uh, let's hold that for now and we'll be right back. Okay. The Good God Program is a project of Faith Commons a nonprofit organization I founded in 2018 to help promote the common good. Doing public theology across faith traditions and across racial and ethnic lines is an important thing today in our communities. We hope you'll continue to enjoy Good God, but look at some of the other things we're doing also through Faith Commons at www.faithcommons.org. We're back with Deanna Hollis, uh, minister, uh, how, what's the language you use? Minister to gun violence or how, how do you, what language do you use about that? <laughs> that? That's a good question. I mean, it's actually just that my role is the um, gun violence prevention minister. Very good, all right. So um, when, when you were ordained just a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. um, Beautiful article, a uh, story in the New York Times, and then picked up by all sorts of people, CNN and others. Are, and uh, we're all very proud of you locally here that uh, this is something that is a work that we many of us believe in, uh, but it's contentious work. It's not like hospital chaplaincy where everybody is so grateful that you're there comforting the sick and the dying and those sorts of things. 
you sometimes are having to argue for things that require people to give up some of their sense of, of, of rights for the sake of other people. And it feels like in our country, it's, it's so often an all or nothing at all proposition, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That you're either for an unlimited access to guns or you just want to take everybody's guns away, right? How do you begin to chip away at that and address uh, the, you know, the question of how uh, reducing gun violence does require some changes in, in our laws? Yeah, so I think, again, the first thing is you have to start with just listening to one another okay. and being able to establish a foundation that we can hear and we can understand what the experience. So the, the person who is very resistant to the Second Amendment, they mm -hmm. didn't get there one day and wake up. Yes. So it's understanding what is their experience about that, to be able mm -hmm. to listen to them and hear what it is mm -hmm. that they may be afraid of. Right. right and and to be able then to talk about that mm -hmm. to get beyond just being so it's not just the second amendment mm. why do you feel this way about sure. this right sure. where is this coming from right. what has led you to this place and then i think it's also another tool is to be able to then to look at our history and once we start to um, understand we've been told history from a very narrow perspective in this country. Mm -hmm. So to be able to start to look at the history from a broader perspective and more angles mm -hmm. is, I'm hoping, will be um, what's needed. Okay. Yeah. Well, the Bill of Rights itself uh, is not absolute because even if you look at the First Amendment, for instance, um, freedom of speech. Well, you can't, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. That's, you'd say, free speech, but it is not permissible in order to do so. But when it comes to the Second Amendment, we should also say that maybe certain limitations should be justifiable uh, in, in order to protect the larger uh, community. Uh, what are some things that are sensible gun legislation that you would advocate for and are now as and help us to consider that? Yeah, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to have a background check on all gun sales mm -hmm. that currently, you know, that there there are not background checks that are done between individuals. And I don't know if you've seen Better Work, he recently went to a gun show in mm -hmm. Oklahoma, which is something that we plan to do and to be able to talk to these folks that are mm -hmm. that are there. And he encountered a man who was selling guns there and that man said, I shouldn't be allowed to do this without a background check. Wow. And so yeah. that's what we need to do. If Yeah, even even many times people who are able to do these things don't agree that it's the right thing to do. Right? That's right. Right. And mm -hmm. so so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is to be able to have um, some ex what's called a red flag law or an extreme risk protection order mm -hmm. so that like the Parkland shooting for example that they knew that that kid was um, a danger and so to be able to have ways to go in when there's su sus 
potential issue and to be able to, mm -hmm. for safety purposes, of both the individual and also in suicides. You know, right. there's often times when people are suicidal to be able to get the guns away. Right. So to have some means to temporarily remove them, mm -hmm. these laws are set up, you know, the thing that most people get concerned about as well as they're going to be due process. And there is, mm -hmm. you know, these laws mm -hmm. have been effective and proven to be effective okay. in the states that have them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm also think that we should reinstate some type of ban on these assault weapons. Okay. There's no reason that we should have that type of weapon on our streets and in the hands mm -hmm. of civilians. Right. You know, magazines. The fellow who walked into, um, I think it was in Ohio, that had a hundred rounds. Right. That he could, there's no need for right. anybody to have access to these types of weapons. And we do already have these limitations. Mm -hmm. You can't own certain weapons, a machine gun, for example. Mm -hmm. There are requirements on that and who right. can have them and what that looks like, you know. Mm -hmm. And this releasing of gun laws is actually pretty new. If you look back at the history, mm -hmm. it's only recently with the NRA mm -hmm. and the legislation that they've been, they have been dismantling our gun laws in this right. country. Right, right. It's, it's, not like, it's not like we're trying to uh, advocate for restrictions for the very first time in the history of our country. It's, it's that legal cases have been brought to undermine restrictions that have been in place and now we're simply trying to bring them back in, in other forms. But uh, enforcement is also an issue, right? Yes. Uh, we, we have gun laws on the books. One of the arguments of the NRA and others is enforce the laws we already have, and that would be helpful. Well, of course, that's true. Uh, but uh, the idea of universal background checks seems to be reasonable uh, for all gun sales, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, we, we talk about mental health being a, a big issue in, in all of this. Um, how how true is that, and how much of that is a red herring, uh, in in terms of the argument about um, preventing gun violence? Yeah, I'm not a fan of using that language because I don't think that it's a mental health problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we want it to be, mm -hmm. but it's not. That that's right. part of we're going to have to look at our own history of violence yes. and hate and yes. what that you know that's been a long history mm -hmm. in this country. This country was founded on slavery and the genocide of the Native American population. Right. You know, we have, we didn't think that was mental illness. Right, right. No, it was um, justifiable by a sense of our theology and anthropology, with superiority of one over another and the right to land and property and manifest destiny and things of that nature. All right, so, I, and I, I don't know too many people who uh, didn't take their Ritalin in the morning and then became mass killers. Uh, I think the problem with the language of mental health is it doesn't distinguish between people who are violent and by nature in their mental health challenges or mental illness and those who aren't. And, it, and then everyone with mental health problems gets slandered by that kind of a designation too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have a, a T-shirt on that says March for Our Lives, and that's mm -hmm. the Parkland group and mm -hmm. the, the young people that have been advocating for uh, gun reform. 
and they've actually just brought out a, a, a pretty comprehensive, significant plan. Can you describe that and tell me, uh, do you subscribe to it fully or do you have issues with it? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, okay. it depends on what hat I have on, I think, as to whether or not I can say I okay. fully subscribe to it. I understand. It. You know, um, I know that at this point in time, they're calling for things that Moms Demand Action does not advocate for. Okay. You know, I think it's going to be interesting to see okay. how, and, and I value their voice. I mm. mean, they changed the conversation, quite honestly. Right. You know, those kids and their bravery and their mm. willingness to, to put themselves on the line, right. the attacks they've got for being victims and saying they don't want to be shot at. Right. You know, so so I applaud them and I applaud how they are pushing us right. forward instead of letting us just continue to be like, well, this is really hard. Yes. So we don't want to anger anybody right, and get right, anybody right. upset. But they're reminding us. That's why I wore this, because the reason why I do this is because of the children. Good. You know, that's the cost mm -hmm. that this our being silent or our being OK with gradualism. Children are dying, and they're dying every single day. And if they're not dying, they're being racked with the trauma of this. Well, they are. And, you know, when, when school just started and you hear reports of children being outfitted with backpacks that have um, bulletproof material in them, what kind of world is this we are living in now, right? That uh, you can't even send your child to school without hoping that there's some bulletproof vest that they're going to be able to wear to protect them. It's it's really scary. And not to mention the fact that they have uh, they have to go through now not just fire drills, but active shooter drills in school. Oh, we've got to find a way to turn turn this in the right direction, don't we? Yeah. Other countries don't live like this. Yeah. So I think we've been running an experiment in this country. You know, the NRA has said that more guns make us safer. Right. And I think at this point in time, we can, we're, the data's in, mm -hmm. you know, and we can say, no, yeah. it doesn't. All right. All right. So when I talk to my friends who are worried about gun reform, what they say to me is, typical of um, what happens often when we talk about laws, and that is, you know, the camel's nose is under the tent. So it starts with things that we could agree upon, universal background checks, red flag laws, uh, maybe assault rifles. Next thing you know, they're never going to be happy until they confiscate your, you know, your handguns and those sorts of things. Um, are they right about that? Is there a an, an ultimate goal that says, let's start here, but let's ultimately get to a gun-free society? Or do we have an ethos in this country that's always going to have some measure of gun availability and, and, and legal guns? And so what would you say to that person who's asking that question? Well, I'd like to know how they're going to get rid of the half a billion guns that we already have, uh, first of all. Yeah. You know, if they've got a plan for that, let mm -hmm. me know, yeah. because it just ain't going to happen. Right. 
you know it's mm -hmm. not even practical there right. are already too many there mm -hmm. you know yeah. so the best we can do at this point in time is always to be able to how are we going to have damage control it doesn't mean though as people of faith you know we hold the vision that isaiah has of what this peaceable kingdom looks like right right and in that there will be war no more right are we going to get there? I don't know. But as a person of faith, yes, that is the vision that I hold on to. Right. And I don't know that it means it's because they're confiscated. My hope is, is because people don't want them anymore. Right. They feel no need for them, and they will nice. surrender their guns. Good. Yes, part of that whole vision is that the swords will be turned to plowshares, right? And that instead of learning war, we will cultivate life together in a safer kind of community that's productive. And uh, our friend Shane Claiborne is, uh, melts down uh, guns and creates uh, garden tools out of them. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful practice and uh, some of uh, our friends have um, bracelets that, that are uh, from uh, gun metal that's been melted down as well. Uh, so it, some of those things are at this stage just gestures in the direction but the but the point is that people of faith are are looking not just to minimize damage but but to promote the kind of well-being broadly where people live in safety and trust with one another right yeah so beautiful well thank yeah. you Deanna for your answering the call the call to ministry but the call to this particular ministry and for helping us find our way with it. Yeah, thank you. We're grateful. Thanks for being on Good God. Thank you for having me. All right. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2019 by Faith Commons.